0: hi everyone welcome to the just saying podcast happy thanksgiving and i hope that your holidays are filled with joy and family and no cuomo sightings for our new york viewers so we are coming into the close of november and i wanted to recognize that november is national adoption month and being adopted myself it's a special month for me and millions of other adopted children and mothers who had the courage to give their children up for the hopes of a better life so because of that i would like to revisit two episodes of the just saying podcast that were focused on adoption the first being my story of adoption and then my story from my newfound brother's point of view and then from our friend chris rudolph who was involved in an international adoption and raised a baby girl from russia and here is an open invitation for anyone out there who has an adoption story to tell or knows of someone who has an adoption story to tell, I would really like to focus more on this topic because it is near and dear to my heart. I was blessed with a birth mother who had incredible courage and selflessness to give me up for adoption because she knew that it was my best chance for a better life. And also blessed with an adopted family who took me in as one of their own and I had an incredible life with them. So with that, happy National Adoption Month. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy this episode of the Just Sayin' Podcast. You're listening to the Just Sayin' Podcast, offering conversations with experts that will educate, inform, and entertain. Here's your host of the Just Sayin' Podcast, Charlie Cornaccio. Today, I wanted to share my adoption story with those of you who may not have heard it before and let you know what has transpired in recent years with the advent of all of these um, DNA home kits and matches on websites like Ancestry.com and 123. So I was legally adopted at one year, seven months. I was fostered at five months. Uh, The same family that fostered me kept me, even though I was sick as a dog when they brought me home from Catholic Charities. Uh, Catholic Charities in the Bronx, was uh, the organization and told my adopted mother and father that they could bring me back because I was so sick and they could swap me out for another child. But my adopted parents, Emily and Maddie, said no. And that started the process of them staying up through the nights with me as I battled the croup and asthma and so many other things in my life. Um, I found out that I was adopted when I was eight years old. My mother, Emily, showed me my original birth certificate. And my name on the birth certificate, my name was actually Paul Henry Cosentino, but my adopted parents named me Charles after my father's father. When I was in my early 20s, I had two children. I know, right, in my early 20s, two children. Um, I was a young father. My daughter Jessica was born when I was 19, and I was 22 when my son Adam was born. My wife Marianne was just 17 at the time when Jessica was born, then 21 with Adam. And um, we're about to celebrate our 47th or 48th anniversary. Anyway, uh, like most adopted people will tell you when they start having children, you begin to worry about health-related things, those things that might skip a generation. And my health was never really that good. So as a young parent, I really had a lot to be concerned about and wanted to make sure that, you know, my kids weren't going to get something that maybe skipped a generation. So in my early 20s, I decided to look for my birth mother. Now, I knew that her last name was Cosentino because of of the birth certificate that my mother had shown me. Uh, But. In that conversation, when I asked who my real parents were, my mother Emily told me that all she remembers is that they said my birth mother's name was Mary, and um, that she was young. So I started looking in the phone books where I worked in New Rochelle. We had uh, a wall with mounds of phone books because This was the mid-70s with no internet, and you had to actually look up the name, and the the listing would have the person's name and the address and the phone number in most cases. In fact, for those of you who are younger, this will blow your mind. Uh, There was a number that you could call for the time, and it would tell you the time right now is, uh, also for the weather and for sports scores from the night before. Crazy, right? I know. Anyway, uh, so I started with the book from the phone book from the Bronx because um, of Catholic charities. There was a Manhattan, Staten Island, Westchester, Brooklyn, Queens. Every county had a book of telephone numbers. And as I went through the C's, I came across an M. Cosentino. So I decided to call that number. And well, but the thing was, what was I going to say? Well, my mother, Emily, told me that Mary was a 16-year-old girl who had to give me up because she was underage or something like that. So I figured I would call the number, and during the math, I would listen to see if the voice sounded like someone in her 40s at that point. And so I started practicing, saying, hello, is there a Mary Cosentino living there? And if I got Mary on the phone, my next question would be, does the name Paul Henry Cosentino mean anything to you? So I don't know. So Mary may have been married by then. And in that case, her name could have changed, but I had to start somewhere. So I started with the Cosentinos. And so I dialed the number on a rotary phone. And with each turn of the dialogue, I feel like my stomach started burning with butterflies forming and my throat was closing up and I realized I can't do this. So I hung up and that's my story. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's plenty more to the story and it actually gets crazy. In fact, I wrote a book that uh, was released in 2014. And if you want a copy, um, you can comment on my podcast website, and we'll contact you for your address and all that good stuff. Or you can go to Amazon and type in "How I Met My Mother and the Four Brothers I Never Knew I Had," and you can order it there. It's on Kindle or um, you know paperback. <clears throat> it is a good read. Just saying, I did have a five-star rating on Amazon. Anyway, all right, so I, I put the phone down. I was too nervous about it. I tried to calm myself down. I was working at a place called American White Cross Labs in the big Knickerbocker Press building in New Rochelle of New York. And um, you can see that building from I-95 as you're going north. It's on the right-hand side. Big, huge, old, old building from like the 1800s. So I took a walk through the factory, practicing my lines. Hello, is there a Mary in this house? Does the name Paul Henry Cosentino mean anything to you? And then I felt I was calmed down. I came back to the office and I dialed the number again. And it started ringing. And a woman answered. And she said, hello? And she sounded much older than 40. But I forced out the words to come out as casual as they could. And I said, hello, is there a Mary living in this house? <laughs> as the words came out, I could tell I sounded creepy before creepy was even a word back then. So to make matters worse, the lady on the other end of the phone says, what? What? And I'm like, oh my God, I gotta go through this again. So I did, Uh, and this time I sounded more like me. Um, I was wondering if there's a Mary living here and uh, the woman all of a sudden calls out away from the phone to somebody else in the house and she calls out, Mary, and then without warning, Here come the butterflies and the sinking feeling in in the pit of my stomach, and I'm getting choked up. But could this be the moment? One phone call. Is it really that easy? So suddenly, another woman gets on the phone, and she sounded like she was in her 40s, but she also sounded very angry. So she says, hello, who is this? I felt like I was bobbling the receiver in my uh, my hand as I blurted out, uh, does the name Paul Henry Cosentino mean anything to you? <laughs> and so she rips right back at me and says, look, we're very sick in this house and we don't have time for this. And she hung up. I stood there just holding the receiver to my ear. Knowing that there was no one on the other end of the phone. But was it her? Did I spook her? And I wondered what she was doing right now. Was she like, oh, my God, he found me? Anyway, so my next plan of attack, genius, was to go to the address and stake out the house. I would look for a woman who looks like me. I was in my early 20s. That was my plan. But anyway, so the next day, um, I'm sitting in my office and I'm going through the sports pages of uh, the Daily News in the morning, and I turn the page after the sports section and there's Ann Landers. Now, for those of you who may not remember, Ann Landers was an advice column where people would write in and ask for Ann Landers to solve whatever problems they were having with their husband or their wife or their kids. It was entertaining. So the first thing that catches my eye is that Ann Landers is answering a question from a woman who met her biological parents. How coincidental, I thought. So as I read through that column, it turns out that this was not a happy reunion. Uh, The woman's birth mother, when she found her, wanted nothing to do with her. And when she found her father, he was strung out on drugs. And so the woman was like, just really disappointed and distraught. And um, Ann Lander's response was, we always think as adopted children that our birth parents are living in this beautiful home out in the country with a white picket fence and good jobs when in reality, it is rarely if ever the case. So she went on further to say, to be careful not to get your hopes up because you may not like what you find. And as I was reading that last part, I could hear that woman's angry voice saying, Look, we're very sick in this house. We don't have time for this right now. And so that kind of spooked me. And I thought about it for a while and I decided pretty much right there, and then that I was not going to look for my birth parents for fear that I might not like what I find. So that was about it for me, uh, at least for another 16 years. 16 years go by of going to the doctors and being asked the question, do you have a history of cancer or Crohn's or asthma or anything else? And my response was always the same, I don't know. I didn't think I would ever know. But then I had been a, uh, got a job as a TV sportscaster at a cable station in upstate New York, about 65 miles from New Rochelle. I met a guy who said that I could be a twin for his brother. He told me he watches the news all the time and he can't get over the resemblance. In fact, he said that his friends who know his brother Robert say the same thing that we look like twins. So, I asked the guy what his name was, just trying to be polite, and he said, Mike, Mike Cosentino. Yep, that's right. There he was, standing right in front of me, Michael Cosentino, who turns out to be an older brother of mine. So I'll give you a little more of the story, but uh, if you want to get the whole story, uh, and and I'm telling you, it's a crazy story with plenty of examples of how our paths cross Uh, many, many times, uh, but we never knew it until we finally met each other. I encourage you to get the book or get it for somebody you know who was adopted because this story ends well and it's got a great message. So here's Mike Cosentino talking about how much I look like his brother. And he's saying how we've got to be related somehow. Um, It's uncanny the way you guys look so much alike and so i thought well mary's probably married now and has a different last name so maybe she's the sister of mike's father which might make her an aunt or something so i asked him do you have an aunt named mary and he paused and he looked at me strangely and then he said no he said i have an aunt amelia and so I said, well, I know that my mother's name was Mary and her last name was Cosentino. And and that was the end of our conversation. Uh, We said our pleasantries and that was that. Uh, The very next day, as I'm coming off the news desk uh, for our 5.30 broadcasts, somebody comes to me and says, Charlie, you have a phone call. So I go to the phone and it's Mike's wife on the other end. And she says, hi, I'm Betty, Mike's wife. Uh, what was all this stuff you were telling Mike about an aunt named Mary is this a joke Uh, did he have the guys from I guess he was a practical joker did he have the guys from the lodge put you up to this and it turns out Mike being the practical joker he is Betty thought that the guys in the lodge put me up to this ruse with Mike to get back at him so I told Betty no I was adopted and I know that my birth mother's name was Mary Cosentino," and it was a long pause. And then Betty says, my hair is starting to stick up, that's his mother's name. (laughs) So, as it turns out, we are actually brothers, and there are three others brothers who I met. Louis, who uh, I met but has since passed. Michael, who got this whole thing rolling. Robert, who turns out to be actually just one year older than me, almost to the day. He was born on July 9th, and I was born the next year on July 15th. And then there's the youngest brother, Vinny. So, four brothers who I never knew I had. Um, fast forward a couple of weeks later, Mike took me to meet my birth mother, Mary. And uh, it was a a very good meeting. Turns out she wasn't 16 when she had me. But my birth father's name, because she had me out of wedlock, was Bob Harris, who had just passed three months before all this went down. So I keep in touch with the brothers. We've been to each other's houses and uh, family functions and weddings and funerals and things like that. Um, Michael, Robert, and myself even played together in a men's adult hardball league for about a year. Um, I remember a funny story in one of those games. I was the last out of the inning. And then when we came back up to bat, Robert was the first batter in the next inning. And the pitcher comes off the mound and stops the game. And he's pointing to Robert and he's yelling to the umpire and to our dugout, this guy batted already, this guy batted already. And it turns out with our helmets on, we actually did look very, very similar. So we got to laugh at that one. Uh, but there are some other crazy stories that um, that are in the book. Um, one is that I posed as a doctor to get my birth medical records from Miss Recording Hospital in the Bronx. Um, Without caller ID back then, it was actually a lot easier than you might think. And then I posed as an old war veteran to be able to get to the wife of my birth father. Uh, I looked up his obituary. It turns out that Bob Harris was a Pearl Harbor survivor. He died in March, um, three months before we actually had this meeting. So I called the funeral home that was listed in the obituary and told them that I just got back into the country And I heard that my old Navy buddy died and uh, could I have the address of his wife so I could send a mass card? And that's the kind of way I was able to meet Bob's wife um, and get info about my birth father because uh, Faye, the wife, knew about the affair that uh, he was having and knew about me. Um, Turns out my birth father and I have a lot of similarities. Music always came easy to me No one else in my adopted family uh, was musical. But my father played guitar and sang. So now, some 28 years later, my brother Robert asked me to do a sibling DNA test with him. Because he thinks maybe there's a possibility. And the results come back. 99.7% that we are, in fact, full brothers. So now we're trying to get Michael to take the test because... um, if he comes up with the same results, then we've got some figuring out to do. But it's clear that I do have a full brother, at least one full brother, and we're wondering if it's coincidence that Robert, my brother, was named after Bob Harris. So, as this podcast falls between my birthday and my brother Robert's birthday, I wanted to encourage all of those adopted people who are still searching, Um, that there can be a happy ending, but to be happy where you are right now. no, You know what I'm saying? In other words, don't be thinking, oh, I could have had a better life, or I wonder what would—God puts us where he wants us, and in his time, you'll get the answers. And that's what happened for me. There are around 4 million babies who are born each year in the United States. And according to the Adoption Network statistics, around 140,000 children are adopted by American families. But some sources estimate that there are about 2 million couples currently waiting to adopt in the United States, which means there are as many as 36 waiting families for every one child to be placed in uh, for, for adoption. Chris Rudolph and her husband, Dave, are one of the last American couples to adopt a baby from Russia, beautiful baby girl named Eliza, And Chris joins us now to talk about that arduous international adoption process and the conditions that these babies were being housed in when she got there. So Chris, thanks so much for joining us from your backyard. <laughs> I wanted to make that known because that's not a, uh, you know, a, a virtual background. That's your backyard. Yes, it is. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get right into it because I think what happened was right after your adoption went through, uh, Putin uh, signed a, a law that said no Americans could adopt Russian babies
1: any longer. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. It actually wasn't right after we adopted Aliza. That that law changed in, um, actually, January 2013. Uh, Russia decided that no U.S. citizen could adopt uh, a baby from Russia. So w- what we did get under the wire with was when we adopted Lisa 20 years ago, she, um, we only had to, we needed to go to what Russia one time to bring her home, whereas probably a, a month after our adoption was finalized, They then said you had to come twice. You had to come to Russia, I guess, so that they could meet you, meet the family. It's going to be the family. And then the the parents had to come back to actually pick up up the child and bring the child home, to their new home.
0: Right. So you only did one trip. Right. Which is pretty convenient. How long were you there before you were able to take Elisa home?
1: We weren't there very long, actually. It was probably maybe it was five days. What was interesting about it is that we had to be ready almost like at a moment's notice because whenever they said we could go, we had to be ready within a couple of days to go. So I remember we, we, we got the call. We thought it was going to be later. And then we got the call that it was within a week, we were going to Russia. So my husband and my, my dad quickly finished Elise's bedroom and I was packing diapers and everything else, getting ready to head off to Russia. So that's how it went.
0: Now, did you know it was Lisa before you got there?
1: The process then was for that agency to send you two, what were videotapes at the time of two infants. And then you were to choose one of the infants. And that was the infant you were committing to. So we knew of her when we only saw her as as an infant, so we obviously didn't know too much, probably had maybe five minutes of footage. Um, Her name in Russia was Elizaveta, and so that's how we came to her name. We ended up just shortening her name and maintaining her name so that it it, it just wasn't something she needed to think about, like, oh, I used to be this person and now I'm somebody else, so.
0: Right, yeah. Did they give you any other background as far as like uh, the the family that she came from or the mother that she came from or anything like they, that?
1: They they didn't give you a lot. I mean, they gave you maybe parents' pseudonyms. I don't know if they were the actual family names. What we could do because when we we got the video, probably when she was uh, two weeks, a month old, and so during that interim, what we did was we took the video and we brought it to somebody who was kind of renowned in terms of specializing in adoptions and you know checking to see if you know as much as you can ascertain from a 5 10 minute video if the baby seemed appeared healthy or there seemed to be appeared to be any kind of neurological conditions or any kind any kind of concerns and so we had that done and in terms of from russia no this there wasn't a lot of information. We did know that she had two siblings in Russia, and that they said that the reason she was being put up for adoption really was um, family hardship. Now, whether that was financial, you know, I, I don't really know. And certainly, we can't ascertain the validity of what was in that document. That, but that's what was in there
0: what were the conditions like when you got there for the uh children who were going to be adopted
1: actually the conditions were very good in russia um it was certainly not a it's not a home per se i mean it's there's a there's a room there's a i remember when we picked her up but first of all when we went there we went and had some visitations with her before we could actually take her and, and bring her to an agency the state the state department in moscow and to To officially adopt her um and it's just it was a lot so we had like kind of one-to-one visits and then we went to get pick her up we got to see a little more of what was like on the inside it was basically like a large area with a lot of cribs um a big area for them to uh crawl around in so i I, there weren't a lot of toys or anything like that but you know that wasn't surprising but I, i would not say that you know she came from conditions that were really concerning to me, whereas um, I had volunteered at one point working with some Russian, excuse me, some orphans in Romania, and their conditions were very poor. But I did not find that the conditions in Russia, at least this particular baby home, and that's what they called it, was a baby home, was in any way poor or concerning.
0: Let's talk about uh, the international adoption and why international as opposed to domestic here in the States?
1: That's a really good question. Actually, we had looked into both. We had originally wanted to look into a domestic adoption, but we had known some couples for whom the d- domestic adoption was interrupted. So the adoption was supposed to happen, then the mom or biological mom or dad changed their mind, and so then the ad- adoption didn't happen. And my husband and I both felt like if we were going to commit to something, just when I. Mean, I we didn't want to have a baby in the home. And then two weeks later, mm. you know, the original family saying, we want the child back. We just, we didn't want to do that. So we knew that for, well, for Russia, my husband's family lineage is, is in part Russian. So we felt like there's some, where there was some lineage there. So it's in part why we did Russia, but um, we would have, we would have looked elsewhere as well. So that's why we did the international adoption because that, that didn't happen during the international adoption.
0: I was going to ask you if you would have, you know, looking back now, if you would have done anything differently, but it sounds like you had a really good experience uh, without any hitches. It seemed to work pretty seamlessly.
1: Yeah, it really did work out very well. I mean, there's a lot that we had to go through and a lot that any family has to go through if they're considering adoption, this home study, this, there's a lot that has to be done, but um, in the end, it was very worth it. And uh, yeah, it, the adoptions for Russia at that time, it, it was not a a, di- a process that was more that was inordinately difficult. It was maybe more difficult than some other countries. I think like um, maybe South Korea. I don't remember exactly, but it was not it was not terrible. And we had an agency who where the director was herself Russian, so there seemed to be a really good connection that she had with these particular baby homes and. Yeah, it was pretty seamless.
0: Yeah, um, go back if you could in your mind, and give us an appreciation of what you felt as a new mom. I know you know you know you, you're you're trying to have a baby. Let's say you can't have a baby, you want a baby so badly, and now you have this baby in your arms. What'd that feel like?
1: Well, it's funny. I think you know most people would expect you to say, you know. It was love at first sight. I was just overwhelmed. It was so beautiful. It was a moment of panic. You're like, oh, oh wow, okay. And you know, it's I, I think it was like, okay, now what do I do? I really suddenly you realize what you really don't know, which um, I think any new parents probably feel. But because when you're adopting, you're so in this forward motion of wanting to make it happen, you sometimes don't have time to think about well, what's it going to be like when that second arrived. So it was definitely a moment of panic, but um, then it was overwhelming love. We just, she was just beautiful. We needed to form a relationship with her. Um, You know, she had been being raised by others for almost six months. So she didn't know us, we were strangers. We were probably a little scary. Maybe we still are, I don't know. But um, so we had to kind of develop a relationship with her. One of the things that we did with her when, before we were able to take her home, which is kind of, might be interesting, is that we ended up hiring what well, turned out to be a nurse who would visit her, I think it was two or three times a week, you know, an hour each time, to spend time with her so that she could attach to a person. Mm-hmm. Because some, one of the things that can be concerning, particularly for international adoptions, where there are multiple caregivers, is you know attachment you know because you're sometimes bringing a baby home could be a toddler home it could you know be an older child home so that's one of the things we did for her that seemed to work out and they ended up doing that for other children through this particular agency so just something to think about in case anybody's going international or just something to consider
0: Let's uh, talk about Elisa and uh, give us uh, uh, how she's doing and and how how her life has been.
1: She's doing great. She really is. She's, uh, you know, a typical, I guess, 20, well, she's a 20-year-old now. She's in college. She's she's doing well, went through all the typical milestones. You know, there are times when she can be difficult and she can, times when she's like an angel. She, you know, this is... Teenager. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, you know, she's 20, but... You know, I think she's still in that older adolescent period, but she's been doing really great and she's just, she's just been a joy to have in our lives. So we've been very lucky.
0: Yeah. As Elisa was growing up, um, how did you handle the information about uh, her adoption, maybe her family, whatever you knew? What kind of questions did she have?
1: Well, we were, you know, families do it differently. Some families do not tell their adopted children that they are adopted. I don't recommend that at all. Um, we talked about it for as long as Eliza was with us. We just, before she had words, we would talk about it so that she would be comfortable talking about it later. Um, it's difficult for these, for these children. I mean, they have the sense that they were abandoned by their biological parents. And I don't know that that's a, that's a loss that ever really goes away But I think, you know, she's certainly attached to us as her, as her parents. And um, so she's, she's comfortable talking to us about it and so forth. But I mean, Charlie, I guess, I mean, you'd know, I mean, it's, it's something I'm, I think you probably grapple with your entire life, even if you were raised by a marvelous family. It's, you know, there's that question of why, why me and, you know, it hurts. So, you know. And, you know,
0: and I definitely felt that. I I would say I was blessed because I got to see, you know, what my life was like with my adopted parents who were phenomenal. Uh, But I also got to see what my life would have been like after meeting my birth mom and my brothers and learning their stories growing up and realizing there were four boys all living in the same bedroom. And, you know, I had my own room, my sister had her own room, you know, it was pretty nice. And so you realize that, you know, before you know things, or if you don't know things, you're always thinking, oh, you know, my life probably would have been so much better. My parents probably had this nice house and I could have, you know, we always think that way, we kind of glorify things, but uh, it's usually not the case. And uh, so, yeah, I could see that. I definitely felt that myself, that sense of you know, what, what happened and, and, uh, abandonment, yeah. you know, uh, j- uh, full disclosure, uh, for those of you who are, who are watching, um, or listening, uh, Chris, uh, actually inspired me to write the book, how I met my mother and the mm-hmm. four brothers I never knew I had. I would tell the story, you know, and just tell the story. And that was that. Yeah, and, right. and I, you remember, uh, Chris was over the house with, with Dave and Eliza And, um, and Chris said, hey, Charlie, tell Aliza your adoption story, figuring, yeah. you know, Aliza, I think she was 14 at the time, whatever. And, yeah. And um, so, you know, I went through the whole thing, told the story. And as I'm telling the story, Aliza, 14-year-old kid, it didn't even look like she was involved or engaged. And she wasn't like, oh, really? You know, she, <laughs> she was just, you know. She was 14. Yeah, she was 14, <laughs> right. And so I didn't feel like she was even absorbing the story. But um then you said something the next day i don't know if you remember what you said and if you could say it again if not i remember exactly what you said but
1: you better tell me i don't remember
0: well the next day you had said to me that uh, aliza had been at that stage in her life where she was wondering you know where i come from who like why they gave me up why me and you know not my my other sisters or whatever and that was before the story that I told that night. And then she got to a sense of, of feeling just kind of settled, where yeah. after she heard my story, she realized that she's where she's supposed to be. And that was pretty much the gist of my story was, we're, yeah. always, we're always exactly where we're supposed to be.
1: Yeah. That's what yeah. God
0: does. He puts us where we're supposed to be. And yeah. so she, she felt a sense of settlement And what you said to me, which is why the book happened, was you said, you know, did you ever think of just writing that down? I was like, no, no, I never did. It just so happens I had gotten laid off from my job, so I had time, which I had never had before. I was always running, you know, candle at both ends. And I sat down and wrote 58 pages in the first sitting because it was just recounting. I wasn't developing characters or anything. I was just recounting the story. But it was because of that conversation and the impact it had on Eliza, that I thought to myself, you know, other people could maybe get a sense of settlement from my story and, and yeah. feel, you know, feel that they're okay and uh, maybe it'll help other people. And that's kind of why I wrote it, but it was because of what you had said. So thank you for yeah. that.
1: Well, I will tell you that, you know, now that you're reflecting back, yes, you did, you know, give her kind of a sense of, of peace and calm about it. You know, she always wondered... And still wonders, but to a lesser extent, yeah, what her life would have been like. And here she had you that got to see both sides. It's also interesting because she had she had kind of da- grappled with contacting the family. We had said to her, look, we'll have the doc. And if you write a letter, we'll have it translated into Russian. I don't know if it's going to really get to this family. I don't know if the address is real. I don't know anything. And I think after she talked with you, she felt less needing... To- less of a need to do that it was like you know she'll think about it from time to time but i think yeah i guess settled is the exact word she's just more settled in where she is and who she is and what she contributes to the world and all of that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i think and that's you got to take the uh the internal value uh and that's good that you say that because you've got to realize what you're contributing to the world And and we're all we're all contributing something, you know, and sometimes adopted people feel a little bit less than everybody else because of their situation. But we all contribute in some way, shape or form. So I I, I think that's that's really important for people to understand. The other thing, too, is, you know, as we said, there's so many stories out there that don't turn out good. And how heartbreaking would it be that you already have this doubt and why and all this other stuff? And then you finally meet your mother. And what if she doesn't want to talk to you? Yeah, That's, it's uh, that would be horrible. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, so save yourself from that. You know, you, know, <laughs> you say to yourself, hey, this isn't so bad, you know. <laughs> and,
1: and you know what? Eliza has said that. She said, suppose she doesn't want to talk to me. Yeah. You know, suppose I reach out to her and she never replies. Yeah. Well, you know, what will that feel like? Yeah. So she's she's thought about that.
0: Or she replies and then you can't get her out of your life and you don't like her what, what yeah. if it's the other way around and you don't yeah. like her and now yeah. you can't get rid of her right? yeah so it goes that absolutely way. that was a fear i'll tell you honestly that was a fear i had when i was meeting my four brothers my fear was you know i had this great family extended family and i yeah. thought to myself what you know i am I'm, I'm fine where i'm at but what if i don't like these guys how, you know how yeah. do i shake them and
1: yeah. The, bl- the blessing yeah.
0: was, was that, you know, it turned out to be just great, you know, so we yeah. all like each other and, and it's good. But right. so there's that side, too. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, Chris, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing your story uh, from your vantage point of, uh, you know, a couple who actually went out and uh, adopted a child and, and brought her home and gave her a loving, uh, loving family, a loving life. Uh, great support. Uh, you know, we know you guys, so I can uh, I can attest to. Uh, all of your parenting skills and everything else. You guys did a tremendous job. You really did. Um, we love when we get together and hopefully we'll yeah. get together soon. But thanks for sharing your story. That sounds great.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Really a pleasure to do this, Charlie.
0: Anyway, that will do it for this edition of the Just Saying Podcast. Make sure that you never miss an episode of the Just Saying Podcast with Charlie Carnaccio by subscribing. Or you could also find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any podcast platform that you get your podcast from or on YouTube and Facebook for the video version of the podcast. Make sure to download or order my book, How I Met My Mother and the Four Brothers I Never Knew I Had. And you can get that through Barnes and Noble uh, or wherever you download your books. That will do it for this edition. Thanks for watching. Stay safe and be kind. We'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Just Sayin' Podcast.